I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, if you don't know how to get around the Bible well, there should be one in front of you. And Philippians chapter 4 is on page 982. We'll begin reading in verse 10 in just a moment. I do need to amend uh, something announced earlier. The, The meeting for students and their parents about past years of camp is actually next Sunday after the service and and not today, all right? So we won't delay your Mother's Day lunch, all right? Um, But uh, let's, let's read, let me read for us verses 10 to 23 of Philippians 4. This is what uh, the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now this will be our... Last week, looking at Philippians, which is a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to this church, to these Christians who are dear to them. And as you'll recall, most of the time that he has talked to them, it has been to help them face the hard days that they are in, days of opposition from the world, days of doctrinal distortion, days of division in the church. But the reason that the whole letter was prompted is that this man named Epaphroditus had come from Philippi with a gift, and so now Paul is taking these closing moments to thank them for the gifts that they sent. Now you'll recall Paul's in prison. You see, on the outside, he would just make tents to make ends meet, but he can't do that when he's chained to one of the Roman guards. And uh, this isn't like a 21st century American prison where tax dollars take care of the needs of the prisoners. This is first century Rome where uh, the provisions that prisoners are going to have are going to come from outside the prison, from uh, family and from friends and those kinds of things. 
I mean, you'll remember in uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, uh, what he said to him in chapter 4, he said, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Well, why did he ask that? Because he was cold, and the Roman government didn't care a bit about the Paul's comfort. So humanly speaking, receiving these supplies from the Philippians was huge. It means he will eat. It means he'll have fresh clothes. It means he'll have a blanket for cold, damp nights. But while this gift was received and while it benefited him, Paul's joy isn't focused on the gift. Paul isn't turning cartwheels because a package has arrived. Paul's joy is in the givers, not in the gift. He's more focused on them than he is what they can give him. And there's actually a secret to this. I mean, Paul could be very well starving by now. Surely, he already said he faced plenty. He faced uh, lack. He's faced all these different kinds of conditions. What is the secret to being able to do that, to not so focusing, to not be like a kid on Christmas morning, right? They finally got the Lego set that they want, and then they open it, and they see it, and then they're so focused on it, they're just like, oh yeah, thanks mom, but they never take their eyes off of the gift, right? The gift is all that there is. They're ready to rip open into it, and they're ready to put it together, and oh yeah, 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 mom gave it to me. Guys, don't be like that with your mothers today, all right? All of you. Just kind of a cursory thanks, but what's really important is the gift. Paul's not like that. If Paul were that child in this letter, he would have set down the Lego box and he would have gone and he would have spent time encouraging and commending his mother for how generous and gracious she was. Yeah, 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 the gift is nice, but you're so much better. And this whole letter has really revealed that, revealed Paul's Great love for them. But, but what, what is the secret to this? How does one do this? How, how, how does one focus on the giver more than the gift? What's the secret to not being so caught up in what's in your bank account? What's the secret to not being caught up in what you have and what you don't have? Well, Paul's going to tell us. He's going to pull us close and he's going to cup our ear and he's going to whisper one word. Contentment contentment you see Paul content Paul's contentment enables him to rejoice in the givers rather than the gift Paul's contentment enables him to rejoice in the Lord who made these people so generous and actually that's what we need to learn today isn't it that contentment rejoices in others generosity and in God who makes us generous So let's look at this. First, we see that Paul learned contentment. Look at verses 11 and 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment is a kind of settledness in your soul. Contentment is the soul at ease. Contentment rests in God's sovereignty, His control over everything that enters and exits my life. 
Contentment rests in the fact that God is good. Contentment rests in the fact that God is for me in Christ. I mean, Paul just finished about talking about resisting anxiety. You remember that? Did you know that anxiety and contentment cannot coexist in the human heart? You cannot be content and anxious at the same time. Because in order to be anxious, you have to lose sight of God. And in order to be content, you have to lose sight of the fact that people say your circumstances are so important. You lose sight of God, you become anxious. You're engulfed by a vision of God, you become content. And that's what Paul is saying was the secret. This little book here, you can see my, you can see my, my bookmark in it. I'm only about a third of the way through. This English Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, this little book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, is worth its weight in gold. It's worth the price just to read the first third of the book. I can tell you because I haven't finished it. I'd buy it all over again just to read the first third. He's so very helpful. But he defines contentment this way. Christian contentment is that sweet Inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now that is a packed sentence, isn't it? Let me read it again. I'll read it slowly. Just think about every word. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And that is essentially what Paul says here. So let's think about what Paul learned as he learned contentment. First, that contentment is an, is an inner condition. It, the word itself in Greek is autarkes, which is, it, it means to be satisfied in oneself, to have enough in oneself. It was a word uh, that, that, that uh, some philosophers called the Stoics used. These Stoics would teach that the highest aim of humanity is to have satisfaction in oneself, to live above need, to live unmoved by what's going on around you, Okay? And we see that kind of philosophy a lot today, don't we? It's actually in, uh, it's, it's very much central in Buddhist thought. So that the one we know as Buddha said, peace comes from within, do not seek it without. This kind of inward look to find within you the strength, the satisfaction, the help, this is, this is laced through all manner of self-help books today, even ones that sit on the Christian bookshelf, that the place you need to look is inside of you. That's what this word meant. Now you have to ask the question, why would Paul use such a word? Don't you wonder that? Don't you want to pull him aside and say, Paul, is this a typo? Did you mean to write this? This sounds, sounds very stoic of you. Are you sure you want to use this word? Well, Paul, have you been listening to Buddhist podcasts, Paul? Is that what you've been doing? He says, no, 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 here's what we're doing. We're going to take this word and we're going to hijack it and we're going to define it like it's supposed to be defined. Because anyone who is in Christ knows this, that yes, there is a strength in the inner man, but that strength does not come from the inner man. 
The satisfaction within actually comes from outside. The strength to be able to be steady and to be satisfied and to feel that he has enough doesn't come from inside Paul. It's been put in in him from outside of Paul. And that's what he says in 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Him is Christ. Christ has strengthened him for all of these conditions. Paul did not write this because he was about to launch out on a business venture and he just declares to the world, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He didn't write this because he wanted to play for his school basketball team and so he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He didn't write this as one contemporary Christian song says now that he wants to show the world how good the Holy Spirit thinks I am. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He says it because Christ gives him strength to be content in all things. I can do all things. Plenty, I can do that. Want, I can do that. Abundance, I can do that. Starving, I can do that. Extra money at the end of the month, I can do that. Extra month at the end of the money, I can do that. Why? Because of Christ. Because in Christ, he has all that he needs. This kind of contentment in Christ is the solution to a discontentment that has ravaged humanity from the very beginning of human history. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden? It's perfect. Adam and Eve have perfect communion with God, they have a perfect relationship with one another. They have all the food they could eat. They have this beautiful garden to live in. And God says, you can eat anything you want, just not that one. And this is where the serpent Satan comes in and says, oh, let me tell you about that one. That's the one you really want. That one. He focuses on that one so that Adam and Eve now feel they need the fruit they're not supposed to have. They deserve the fruit they're supposed to, not supposed to have. So they take what they're not supposed to have. Isn't that basically every sinful decision we've ever made? Isn't it just, no, 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 I need that. I want it. I need it. I deserve it. I'm going to take it. I don't care what anybody else says. This is discontentment at its core. And the human race ever since has, hasn't been content with God. Our hearts chase after anything and everything to satisfy and we come up empty. Just read the book of Ecclesiastes and you'll see this over and over again. He starts out with his thesis in chapter 1 verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's like trying to snag the steam that comes off your coffee. You're not going to come up with anything. It's like drinking salt water, thinking you'll be satisfied at the end and you're only more thirsty. 
It's like thinking if I just had a little more money and then when you get a little more money, well, if I just had a little more money than the little more money I thought I needed. Well, if only I could get married. Well, if only we could have biological children. Well, if only I could have a better job. If only I could move up. If only, if only, if only. And nothing will satisfy That is the condition of the human heart. And you know why? Because nothing created, not even the good gifts that God gives us in this life, are meant to satisfy our souls. Blaise Pascal said it so well, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Without your soul being satisfied in Jesus, let me tell you, it will never be satisfied. No achievement will ever be enough. No job will ever be enough. No husband or wife will ever be enough. No children will ever be enough. No success will ever be enough. No house will ever be enough. No influence in your circle will ever be enough. It will never be be enough until you come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ without your soul being satisfied you won't be satisfied but the solution to discontentment isn't to look for more things it's actually to look to a person It's to look to Jesus Christ. It is to trust in His death to save you. It is to trust in His righteousness to be your merit before God. And when you do that, you will see that your deepest and most abiding need, the need that goes beyond the grave, has been satisfied. You'll learn what Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Do you know the satisfaction of Jesus in your soul? He has satisfied the wrath of God in His death so that you can live satisfied forever in Him. Contentment is an inner condition. And our inner conditions need to be changed so that we can be content. Also, contentment isn't based on circumstances. Paul says that explicitly in uh, verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. All these contrasting circumstances. Paul's basically saying, I'm content in Christ if every meal is thanksgiving. And I am in my recliner... And I can't imagine putting one more bite of food in my mouth. And he says, I am content in Christ when there's not a scrap of food and my stomach rumbles and I'm lightheaded and I'm dizzy from the hunger and I don't see any provision coming from anywhere. That Christ is his commitment in both. Now, it is important to know that it is okay to seek to improve or relieve situations. If if you have a headache, to take an Advil is not to be discontent. It is to use the means that God has given to go to the doctor, to take your car to the mechanic, to look for a job that will better provide for your family. These are all things that God has given us and may actually provide something from Him that is good. But... 
Did you know that there are a lot of times when our power and our ability and our time and our money simply can't do what we think it needs to do in order to fix this situation? And that's when it will come down to it. To whether we've actually learned that contentment doesn't come from our circumstances. Listen to Jeremiah Burroughs again. Though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is my strength and my portion forever. Contentment's an inner condition not based on our circumstances, and it is learned. It is learned. He used that word in verse 11. You didn't think Paul had anything to learn, right? I mean, you kind of think he came out just going like full blazes. He knew it all. He knew how to do everything. Apparently, he had to learn this, and this, this isn't something that just happens. It's not when you come to faith in Christ. You know, God didn't just snap his fingers, and you're content for the rest of your life. It's something that you have to learn, and as you know, there are a couple kinds of learning, Right? There's classroom learning. You read the books. You talk about the theories. You talk about the practices. You have the discussions. And once you have the degree, you're pretty sure you know everything there is to know about that particular subject. But then there's on-the-job learning. I remember when I was in seminary, I, I, uh, I started, I, I was hired to be on staff at, this, at a little church outside of Louisville, First Baptist Church Prospect. Now, I was in seminary, all right? I say that with great gravity so as to emphasize it. I was in seminary. I had worked in youth ministries that were very, very large in three different ones. I had had all the experience I could ever need watching someone else do this. And I was brought on to lead the youth ministry and to lead the music ministry, and so I remember I had, you know, my boxes. I go into my office. I unpack the 20 or so books I had at that point and put them all on the, they're like four full bookshelves, and I've got two shelves with books on them. And then I had my Arizona iced tea bottle collection because I was fascinated with it. Why? There is no reason. I just was. I was always, on, I'd go into a gas station, I'd always be on the hunt for another Arizona iced tea bottle. I didn't even drink it. I just liked the way the bottles looked. So I would get, I would buy them just to put them on the shelf. So I put up the Arizona iced tea bottle collection and the books are on the table and I walk down the hallway with great vigor and I go into the workroom and I get a box of pens and I get a stack of legal pads because I didn't have a computer in my office. So I walk back to the office and I sit down at my desk and a question came to mind and it terrified me. Now What? And from that moment on, I learned on the job. How do you move through your week? How do you prepare for this? How do you do that? How do you administrate this or that? And contentment is on the job learning. You can't actually learn, you can only learn about contentment in a classroom or in a sermon. You can't learn contentment itself. 
You can only learn about it. Contentment happens, learning it happens day by day as you're brought low and as you abound, as you face plenty and hunger, as you walk through abundance and need. And here's the thing. If you never experience lack or need or loss or the absence of something you wish were present, you'll never actually know if you're learning contentment. Or if you're just learning to be pleased with life because it's going the way you'd like it to go. That's not actually contentment. And so how does God teach us? Well, first, He gives us Christ. He gives us Christ who is enough, who is truly enough. He gives us His Holy Spirit to dwell with us, to help us, to strengthen us. And then, in order to teach contentment, There are times he withholds and times he removes. He does that with things that very well may be taking the place of Christ in our affections. And not just bad things either. Not just horrible things. But things that could be quite good. A home in a better neighborhood, or marriage, or biological children, or a kinder boss, or kinder relatives, or a better paying job, or just the job we went to college for. Listen to our friend Jeremiah Burroughs here. Since God is contented with Himself alone, if you have Him, you may be contented with Him alone. And it may be that this is the reason why your outward comforts are taken from you, that God may be all in all to you. It may be that while you had these things, they shared with God in your affection. A great part of the stream of your affection ran that way. God would have the full stream run to Him now. That's what we have to learn. We have to learn that nothing will satisfy us except God alone. The only way we will learn that is for the things that we so grasp at in our lives to sometimes be taken away. Sometimes temporarily and sometimes permanently. Because what is most important Is it most important that you have that thing that you need to satisfy you? Or is it most important in the spectrum of eternity to learn that Christ is all in all? Jesus said, come to me and you'll have rest for your soul. Not come to me and I'll give you things and stuff That will give you rest. Just come to me and I will give it to you. Do you want rest for your soul? Do you want contentment? Take a good and long and lingering look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he has done for you. And beg God. To help you so that nothing dethrones him in your affections. Paul learned contentment. 
And that contentment enables his rejoicing so that the second thing we see is that Paul rejoices in others' generosity. That's actually how Paul starts in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So in part, he's rejoicing in their generosity. But, but before we actually focus on that, just know this, that this isn't like, this isn't a covert operation. He's not saying, uh, it's been really nice for you to give to me. I'm really satisfied with it. Could we just pass the plate one more time? Could we, it's so great, you're so generous, you should probably give more. It's not a covert operation. In verse 11 and in verse 17, he starts with this, not that. The first one, I think, is uh, not that, uh, as I seek the gift. No, the first one is not that I'm speaking of being in need. Verse 17, not that I'm seeking the gift. I'm not after something here. There's, there's no underlying current of ulterior motive. He's just rejoicing in them. In fact, look at verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. That's, he's saying, I couldn't imagine receiving anything more than you gave. It's more than enough. His focus, again, is on the givers, not the gift. And he focuses on, first, their concern. That's what verse 10 is about. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that, that at length in there, that doesn't make sense to us. That mo, that's the ESV. Most translations translate that at last. So at last you have revived concern for me. But you shouldn't picture Paul giving them a hard time, right? He's not got his hands on his hip and his toes tapping, right? He's going, at last, finally, your gift came. That's not what he's saying here. All right? Paul's actually been on their mind. There's not a prayer meeting that goes by in Philippi where Paul's name isn't mentioned and they're praying for him and they're concerned for him and they're thinking of him. The language here is actually the same language back in chapter 2 to have the same mind as the Lord Jesus Christ to consider others more important than yourself. And that's what the Philippians do. That's what Paul's recognizing. So why this business about at last or at length? Well, apparently... Whatever the physical expression of that concern was, was delayed. It was deterred some way. We don't know. But imagine, it's like this. It's spring. And everything is in blossom again, right? We we just moved into the house that we're in in July. And I could have sworn that when we first looked at it, it was blooming. But I couldn't remember what it looked like. Um, which isn't unusual for me to forget, but I couldn't remember what it looked like. So all winter long, I'm looking at this bare tree out here just saying, what is that? I cannot remember what that looks like. And then come April, I discover it's a redbud tree and these beautiful purpley blooms. I don't know if that's the right color. You can talk to your neighbor about that after church. But these beautiful purpley blooms are just all over the thing. And that's what Paul is actually meaning to say. When he says that their concern revived, it's kind of like a dormant flowering tree that's come through the winter and now it's blooming again. It was always in there, but now it's blooming. And Paul, 
acknowledges and rejoices in their concern. He also rejoices in their partnership. Look at verse 14 to 16. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They weren't just friends. They were partners in the work of the gospel. The sum and substance of Paul's ministry was to preach the gospel and establish churches. That's what he did everywhere he went. He had established the church in Philippi. You remember how? It was a women's prayer meeting, an exorcism, and a jail stay. That's how the church at Philippi got launched. If anybody tells you that there have to be ideal conditions for a church to be planted, just go to Acts chapter 16. And you'll say, look, there's a women's prayer meeting, there's an exorcism, and there's a jail stay. I'm not sure anybody would just say, oh, of course, that's how a church is born. You know, that's not, that's not it at all. And yet this church is born, and after there, Paul goes immediately in Acts 17, you read about it, he goes to Thessalonica to preach the gospel. And all the way through, the Philippians are by his side. And it's not smooth sailing. You can see in verse 14, he mentions it. He says, to share my trouble. He's even in trouble now. He's in prison. But he had left The Philippians didn't just wave as he goes out of town and say, thanks so much, we really appreciate you. And then they just huddled in. No, their hearts went with him. They had his back every step of the way. They're loyal. They will not stop. They're the first church to partner with him. Paul had, by God's grace, Paul had birthed this church and like a baby's instinctive clinging to its mother, the Philippians just kept Their heart just was with Paul all the time. I mean, if Paul had kept a journal noting all of the ways that God had blessed them, my guess is that the Philippians would have come up in it over and over and over again. They weren't just supporters. They weren't just financiers. They were partners. So that as Paul was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica... They were preaching the gospel with him because they were with him. When he was run out of town, they were run out of town with him. When he goes to Berea, they go to Berea with him. When he preaches in Athens, they preach in Athens with him because they're partners in this deal. That's what it's like for us and all of our missions partners. We are working even right now in many different parts of the world for that same reason. This church is dear to Paul. He loves them not for their wallet, but for their heart. And their investment with him, is he means to give them credit. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, that phrase, the fruit that increases to your credit, it could be used in agricultural circles, like the harvest is growing. But it could also be used in banking terms, like the interest on your initial investment is growing. Either way, Paul seems to be saying, you are laying up treasure in heaven as you partner with me, and the reward is growing. Now, he rejoices in their generosity, but remember, this is all in response to a gift. 
Do you notice how little of that was actually about the benefits that he received from the gift? It was all about them. And he can do that because he's content. He's content to serve the Lord with their gift. He's content to serve the Lord without their gift. I remember being at a, uh, I remember being at a pastor's conference at, at Alistair Begg's church, and there was a Q&A, and um, one of the questions was, uh, from it was just a handwritten question that somebody had asked. They were a pastor at a church, and it had been several years, and the church uh, had not increased their salary at all, and all and all these things. Um, and uh, Alistair just basically said, "Well, uh, I mean, he said a number of other things, but let me get to the to the back end of what he said. I mean, he talked about provision and the, and, and the goodness that is for our families, but." He said, look, in the end, you do, your, you, you do your business and you trust the Lord. He said, they can never pay us too much money to do what we do. And they can never pay us enough. Because money is not the final issue. It is the work. And that's the kind of thing that, that, that is, behind, is right in the middle of Paul's provision. So when the provision arrives, it's not the focus. The kindness, the concern, the partnership, the loyalty of the ones who gave are in focus. But, friends, there is a giver, capital G, behind all the givers. And that's where Paul's ultimate joy is. So that's the third thing to note. Paul rejoices in God who makes us generous. In the end, this matter of giving and receiving and support and partnership, it is not a merely horizontal thing. It's not a human thing. It's a God thing. So Paul begins with God. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern. He knows that the Philippians' gift is a result of God's work in them. So he rejoices in the Lord who provided for him through them. And not only is their gift from God, it is given to God. Look at the last half of verse 18. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We have to remember that, friends. We have to remember that our giving... I mean, we don't pass a plate anymore right now. Uh, we give online, we give through the kiosks and all these things. Uh, but we have to remember that our giving is not a matter of keeping the lights on. It's not a matter of paying salaries. It's not a matter of funding programs. It's a matter of worship. In the same way that we praise and we serve and we obey in response to and based on the worthiness of God and what He has done for us in Christ, in that same way we ought to give in response to and based on the worthiness of God and what He has done for us in Christ. Paul begins with God. Why? Because the giving began with God. Because His needs being met began with God. And then Paul ends with God. Look at verse 19. After having said that He is well supplied, he looks them in the eye and he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, the same God who supplied Paul's need through the Philippians will supply the needs 
of the Philippians. And this promise of provision is grounded in what God has done for us in Christ. Just just think about what Romans 8.32 says. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God has given up Jesus Christ to save you, and he has, if he's promised to never leave you or forsake you, and he has, If he feeds the bird and clothes the fields and says, you're higher on his priority list than they are, and he does, then you can trust that he will never fail to provide what you truly need. Never. The moment God fails to do what he says he will do, we can just close up shop here and sell the building and go on home. But God says, there is nothing that we truly need that He will not provide. All I have needed, Thy hand hath provided. You see, behind the Philippian givers is the divine giver. God stirs the Philippians' hearts to give. God is the reason they give. And God will make sure that the givers are taken care of. So since everything is beginning and ending with God, it's no surprise that in addition to those things, Paul glorifies God. Verse 20, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul rejoices in God because he's content. His heart is settled. He's at peace with any condition that God brings into his life because it begins with God and it ends with God and it will glorify God because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. He knows God. He trusts God. God will not do anything wrong in Paul's life ever. God will never fail him. God may be confusing, I may not understand what God is doing. I may not get why this or that happened at this time or that time. But I can tell you this, God has not failed. God will not withhold anything that is truly needed. He will bring provision as he sees fit. So that Paul's heart of contentment says this. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can your heart say that? Is the name of God only blessed when He gives? Is the name of God blessed in your heart and in your mouth when He takes away? Do you know and trust God in this way, this sovereign and good and faithful God? Are you content? How's it going learning contentment? Are you learning? Are you kicking back against your heavenly teacher? You'll never have the joy you're intended to have until you learn contentment. Now, friends, Paul's given us the classroom lecture. 
He's given us the content. He's given us the information. And now, we're going to pray. We're going to be dismissed. We're going to go about our Mother's Day activities. We're going to launch into the week ahead of us. And the -the on-the-job learning of contentment will continue. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you thankful, thankful for your word, thankful for the example of the Apostle Paul. We are thankful that Jesus Christ is enough for our souls. Oh God, we do ask that you would teach us contentment, that you would teach us not to run to the things of this world, to the things we hope to achieve or gain in order to satisfy ourselves. Help us to see Jesus as the treasure hidden in a field that we would sell everything to get. Help us to see Him as the greatest treasure of our soul. The one we must cling to. That when all around our soul gives sway, He then is all our hope and stay. That as the wind and the waves beat against our house, we will not fall because we have learned the lesson of contentment. God, would you make us a content people? We are in the midst of a very visibly and audibly discontent world. Would you make us content in Christ? over and over again. Withhold what you must, but teach us contentment so that we might glorify you better. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen.